We do ask that God speak to us as we open His Word, as we sang in the song, how firm a foundation is given to us through His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has already said in His Word? So as we open up the Scriptures today, what I want you to know is that we are opening up the sufficient Word of God and that God can and will speak to you. And so we pray that He gives us ears this morning so that we might hear. If you need a Bible, we encourage you to follow along. Just raise your hand and somebody in the back, will, uh, one, of the, one of the ushers will give you a Bible. Just slip up your hand and um, right down here in the middle. And uh, you can find the page number in the table of contents if you're new to the Bible. And we are in the book called First Peter. We have been in here understanding this theme of suffering since January. And I pray that you are ready to suffer, should the Lord call you to that. And today we are looking at this idea of rejoicing in our suffering. So read along with me in 1 Peter chapter 4, starting with verse 12 through 19. Follow along in your Bible as I read. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray and let's ask God to indeed speak to us. Father, we ask that you give us ears to hear what has been read this morning. That you might help me explain it clearly. That you might help me illustrate this. That you might help me apply this to our lives. And then that you would do the work that I can't do. That you would open up hearts, minds, souls. That you would convict us of our sin and lead us to Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was the year 177 in Gaul, which is modern-day France, and Marcus Aurelius was the emperor of Rome. A young lady named Blandina was arrested for her faith, along with hundreds of others who were being accused of being cannibals because they were eating the body of Christ. Misunderstood, no trial, they were accused Accused, they were arrested, and many were sentenced to death. It was a holiday season, and people filled the amphitheater for entertainment as Christians would be tortured day after day in front of the bloodthirsty crowds. Blandina, this young girl, was tied to a stake, and wild beasts were released. After a couple hours went by, they didn't touch her, and she was untied, and she was thrown into a prison. 
Over the course of the next week, every day, Blandina was brought out to witness, forced to witness, the torture of her brothers and sisters in Christ. And after each one died, she was asked if she too would, re- or she would recant the faith. And day after day, she clung to her only hope in life and in death, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, they brought her out of the prison and they led her into the amphitheater before the bloodthirsty crowds. And there, the crowds would be amazed as they would see a young girl tortured beyond comprehension. They scourged her. They placed her on a red-hot iron gate as a human barbecue. As she still was not dead, they took her and they tied her up into a net. And they threw her to a wild bull. And the crowds cheered as the bull had her in the horns, throwing her up into the air, mangling her body. When the bull was finished with her, she was still not dead. And she stood to her feet in her faith. She would not recant. She clung to her only hope in life and in death. And that is Jesus Christ. Finally, an executioner took her life with a dagger. The Christians who were forced to watch her execution said this, they said, Blandina, having been affected by none of the things which were happening to her, on account of her hope and firm hold upon what she had been entrusted to, her communion with Christ, she was finally sacrificed. For those of us that might think that that story is rare and unique in our Christian history, let me give you a brief history lesson. Around the time of this writing, 1 Peter, the emperor was Nero, and he began to burn Christians at the stake to provide ambient dinner lighting for his his dinner parties. Around the year 81 AD, another emperor took power, and many Christians were persecuted. At that time, John was sent to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book Revelation. Fifteen Fifteen years later, Emperor Trajan began to persecute Christians. At this time, Ignatius was thrown to the lions, along with many others. From the years 138 to 161, Antonius Pius became emperor and began to persecute Christians once again. It was during these years that an old man named Polycarp boldly offered to proclaim the doctrines of Christ to the executioner and to the crowds that were watching right before the beasts were released. From the years 161 to 180, Marcus Aurelius was in power. And during those years, among many others, Justin Martyr, along with Blandina, were killed for their faith. After them, Emperor Septimius Severus beheaded the father of the theologian Origen and persecuted many others. Around the year 250 AD, the Emperor Decius rose to power, and he demanded that there would be certificates held by all Christians. And the certificate was given when the Christians would offer sacrifices to the gods. And if they did not have the certificate to show the soldier when asked, the Christian would be persecuted, enslaved, tortured, and sometimes killed. Around that same time, Valerian accused the Christians of natural disasters because they were not worshiping and offering sacrifices to the gods, and it turned bloody. From 284 to 305, Emperor Diocletian took power, 
And he, again, began to persecute Christians, destroyed their books, enslaved them, and tortured many. Now, I don't say all of that to give you a bunch of dates and to bog you down with history lessons and names and dates. I don't say that to depress you this morning. I say that to say this. Our faith is rooted in suffering. Our faith was born out of severe persecution and suffering. Our faith grew in suffering. We are a suffering people, and these are our ancestors. I say that to give you some context, because when we read verse 12, we read, don't be surprised, beloved, at the fiery trials when they come. Don't be shocked when they come. Now, tell me whether or not the Christians during the first couple hundred years of Christianity would have clung to this verse. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. But then he goes on, he says, but instead, rejoice. Rejoice in this. We are called to not only be aware that suffering might happen, to not only recognize the fact that it's imminent, but when suffering comes, we are called as Christians to rejoice in our suffering. Now for many of us, we would say, if we can just get through it, if we can bear it, I'll be happy. But you're telling me today, Peter, that I have to rejoice in my suffering? Listen, during the first couple hundred years of Christians being killed, you know what infuriated the emperors? It often wasn't the fact that they would not recant their faith. What infuriated them is is that they would have smiles on their face until death. What infuriated the emperor is when they would pick up the head of the beheaded Christian, there would be a peaceful expression plastered upon the face. Friends, I want to be like the Christians that came before us. I want to be able to face the worst that this world could throw at me and rejoice in my suffering. But we have to, at this point, ask a good question. Isn't this masochism? Masochism is the idea that you enjoy receiving pain. Are Christians called to be masochists? Well, certainly not, as Paul would say. Masochism is a psychological disorder. Now, we don't take joy in feeling the pain. We don't even hope for suffering to come. There is nothing enjoyable about the pain that Christ felt when He died for your sins. Yet He went to the cross joyfully. And we follow after Him. And we rejoice in our suffering. What I want to talk about today are four things that the Christians who came before us knew that we don't know today. Four things that they knew that allowed them to suffer well. That allowed them to rejoice in their suffering. Number one, they knew that they were suffering for the right cause. 
They knew that they were suffering for the right cause. Look at verse 13 through 16. I just want to kind of give you a structural picture as to what's going on here. You see those two words, at least in my translation in the ESV, it says, but rejoice in verse 13. It says, don't be surprised at suffering, but instead rejoice. Now after that, from 13 through 16, is one long parenthetical phrase. Alright, so this is, you could put parentheses around the, those three verses. Because essentially what, Paul is, or what Peter is doing here is he's saying, okay, when suffering comes, don't be surprised, don't be shocked, don't consider it strange, but rejoice. And then he backs up and he says, now let me qualify that. And this is how he qualifies it. He says, rejoice as long as you're sharing in Christ's sufferings, but don't be suffering for stupid things. Don't find yourself suffering, right there in verse uh, uh, 15, as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler, which is a gossiper. There's a great short story that I commend to you called Gospel Blimp. And it's a short story about these friends who got together and said, ah, what if we had a blimp? that we could use to evangelize our city with. So they spent a lot of money and they got funders, a lot of partners, and they bought a blimp. And they used the blimp to, uh, to, to quote-unquote evangelize the city with gospel verses on the side of the blimp and, and sort of the tail coming out of the blimp with messages of the gospel on it. They were so happy with themselves and their evangelization. And then somebody had the bright idea. This is a fictional story, by the way. It's funny. You should read it. It's funnier than the way I'm telling it right now. Somebody had the bright idea, let's put a PA system on the blimp. Because then we could play, it could basically be like a big service for everybody. As they're walking, as they're doing their lawn, as they're going to work. They could hear songs being sung and they could hear the gospel being preached. And so they put a massive PA system on the side of the blimp and they played really cheesy songs like... I don't even want to name one because I might offend. That's my favorite song. (laughs) So they're playing these Christian music, and then somebody gets on and gives a 10 or 15 minute sermon over this massive loudspeaker as people are out doing their thing. In the book, the fictional author who's writing this story, he says, and that's when the persecution began. That's when, they, that's when the persecution began. Listen, friends, if you are being persecuted, if you have suffering in your life because you have an obnoxious blimp overhead with a big PA system attached to it and, and, and you're disturbing the peace and you're per- being persecuted, that's, that's not, Peter would say, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what the Christians were facing in the first 300 years of our faith. If you're being persecuted because you're holding up a sign that says sinners go to hell and you're mean and you're arrogant in the way that you share your faith, Peter would say, that's not what I'm talking about. You're suffering for the wrong reasons, friends. Or to use Peter's own analogies, if you're persecuted because you murdered someone, you're suffering because you're an evildoer, you're suffering because you're a liar. You're suffering because you're a gossip and you lost a bunch of friends. You can't say, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus now. Peter says, no, that's not the suffering I'm talking about. You can't really rejoice 
in that suffering. One pastor who had sexual relations with a number of boys, when he was quote-unquote restored to ministry, it was said of him that he has survived the persecution. Peter would say, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not suffering for Jesus. When a church launders money, you're not suffering for Jesus when you lose your tax exemption. You get the picture here, right? So we have, this is sort of our foundation. If we're going to talk about what it means to rejoice in our suffering, first place we need to go is to understand what we're talking about. We're talking about suffering for Christ. We're talking about you being a person of conviction and you don't get a job because you're not willing to budge on your convictions. We're talking about uh, a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend suffering because they had to break up uh, an, an ungodly relationship that was heading in the wrong direction and they were not willing to budge in their Christian convictions. Or on a broader scale, we're talking about things that have been happening around the world. In Nigeria. In Iraq. We are talking about suffering for Christ. Now, the last couple hundred years in the United States, Christianity has become somewhat normal. The culture has in many ways been leavened by the Christian worldview as laws, Christian laws, look very similar uh, to the, the laws of the land. And we have then, as Christians, bought into this idea that Christianity is in fact pretty normal. Everybody's a Christian. Everybody calls themselves a Christian. At least most people do. It's pretty normal to be a Christian in the United States. At least it has been. We've associated Christianity with Western success. But Russell Moore recently said, Christianity isn't normal anymore. And then he added, and that is good news. Why would Russell Moore say the fact that Christianity is not normal in the United States anymore, why would he say that that is good news? Here's why. It's because when there is suffering for Christ, when being a Christian truly means that you are joining and part of a countercultural community, and you have to lose things as a result of your faith and as a result of your convictions, when suffering for Christ becomes a reality, it separates the wolves from the sheep. When suffering for Christ becomes a reality, the true church is seen. When suffering for Christ becomes a reality, you have to now decide which team you're on. And those who try to play the fence always will find themselves on the team that opposes Christ. And so we're talking here then about suffering for Christ. Now that we have laid that foundation and, and we have been called then to holiness and to a life of conviction, and we're going to be committed to that, let's go on. The second truth that they knew, our ancestors knew, that got them through suffering rejoicing is this. They knew that suffering is from God. And it's for your good. 
Let me repeat that because that is in and of itself a countercultural phrase. They knew that suffering is from God and it is for your good. Now at first, that seems preposterous. It seems ridiculous. It seems offensive to some of you. That suffering is from God. God is the author of what's happening in Iraq. It seems at first offensive, but friends, this is absolutely crucial if we are going to rejoice in our suffering. Look at verse 12. Beloved, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Everybody say test. That means that it's coming from God. So these fiery trials that you are not to be surprised by or shocked by that you're to rejoice in are trials that are to test you. Who is the tester? It is God Himself. He goes on. You can drop down to the last verse. He says, let those who suffer good or suffer according to God's will. Not according to Satan's will. Not according to the will of ISIS. But those who suffer according to God's will. You see, God is the author of our suffering. Now, I, I've explained it this way before. Let me use the same illustration because I think it's helpful. You remember my dentist illustration a couple weeks ago? If you go to a bad dentist and you've got to get some work done on your tooth and he says there will be no suffering, there will be no pain, it's going to be easy. And halfway through the procedure, excruciating pain develops. Do you trust the dentist? The answer is absolutely not. He told me this won't hurt and I am feeling more pain than I've ever felt in my life. Get me out of this dentist chair. But when you go to the good dentist and he says it's going to hurt, there's going to be some pain about halfway through. But when you, when you feel that pain, you need, to, you need to trust me. And you need to know it's for your good and I'm going to fix your tooth. See, knowing where our pain is coming from changes how we face the trials in our life. God is testing us by trials. 1 Peter 1.7, it says this, Now we, are, we have been grieved currently by all sorts of trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, though tested by fire, will be found to result in praise. God is testing us with our suffering. Listen, torture and surgery look very similar. But there is a world of difference between the two. God will never torture you. But the great physician will often go to surgery. And it is for your good. He will refine you. The word here in, in verse 12 is, uh, to, to describe this is fiery, which could maybe have a reference to the fires of Nero. More likely, it's probably a reference back to chapter 1, verse 7, where he says that you, have, you are being tested by, by fire. The refiner's fire is a theme all throughout the Bible. That God is the refiner. And He is holding His people in a refining fire. Now, the interesting thing about fire is that it does not destroy indiscriminately. It depends on the material. 
So you don't want to hold straw into a refining fire. That would be a bad idea. Let me really make this straw nice. Flame up, it's gone, it's destroyed. However, you can hold silver up to a refiner's fire. The silversmith holds the silver to the refiner's fire and he sits there and he watches it as the silver is being refined. And he, and he watches it because if the silver is in the fire for a second too long, it will be destroyed. And so he's carefully watching over the refining process. Every bit of it, the artist has his hand on. And as soon as he sees his own image in the silver, he pulls it from the refining fire and it is done. Listen, we are in the, in the hands of the artist. And our suffering for Christ is something God is doing in our life. And when it comes, not only are we not shocked, not only are we not surprised, but we can say, I see, teach me something, Lord. Speak to me, Lord. Explain to me what's going on. What, what, why is this happening to me right now? I'm trusting in you. I'm hoping in you. What matters to the Christian is not external success. What matters to the Christian is not earthly uh, comfort or fame. What matters to the Christian is our faith. That our faith might be tested. That our faith might be refined and might be proven to be gold. The third truth that they knew that we forget is this. They knew that their suffering united them with Jesus. So not only do they have this foundation of the fact that they're suffering for the right cause, not only do they understand that God is the one behind the testing, behind the trials, but they also knew that their suffering united them with Christ. Friends, this was a theme throughout the first 300 years of Christianity. May I truly become a disciple of Christ. And what that often meant for them was their persecution. Look at the language used in these verses. In verse 13, share in Christ's sufferings, he says. Meaning, bear the reproach that He bore. Meaning, we live in a John 1 world. The world in which Jesus came into and knew Him not. He came into His own, and His own what? Does anybody remember? They did not... Receive Him. Friends, this is the world that we live in. If the world did not receive Christ when He was here physically, what makes you think the world is going to receive you? A follower of Christ. As we live in this John 1 world, we then are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He goes on in verse 14. He says, we are insulted for Christ's name. The concept of name in the Bible is synonymous with the concept of fame, which means that if we want to lift up the name of Christ in our midst, what we're saying is is that we want Christ to become famous. So if you then, let's turn that around, are suffering for the name of Christ, it doesn't mean that you're just suffering because you wore a t-shirt that said Jesus on it. If you're suffering for the name of Christ, what it means is that you are sharing in His infamy. You are associated with Christ. And you are persecuted for that reason. In verse 16, then he goes on. Let me read verse 16 to you. 
It's very important. He says, yet if anybody suffers as a Christian, everybody say the word Christian. This, this is one of three places we see the word Christian in the Bible. He says, if anybody suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What's he saying here? Well, the, the, the word Christian, the nickname for us, came from a place called Antioch. Antioch was very famous for nicknaming people. And so as Christianity was booming after the death and resurrection of Christ, and as it was then slowly being distinguished from Judaism, the folks in Antioch said, we, we've got to have some other defining name for these people. We've got to nickname them. So they started calling them Christians, which essentially just means the people of Christ. However, they didn't mean it in a positive way. It was actually sort of a, a word of discrimination. It was kind of a bad word. The C word. You're called a Christian. Ah. And what Peter is saying here is, people call you that? The C word? Praise God that you can be counted worthy of such a name. Yeah, everybody calls themselves a Christian today, don't they? So many do at least. Everybody. I want to be like Ignatius just before he was thrown to the lions. He was being dragged to Rome. And he said, he wrote this in a letter, he said, may I not only be called a Christian, but may I be found as one. May I be found worthy of such a name to share the name of Christ, the people of Christ, the way of Christ. Before Ignatius was thrown to the lions, he wrote this to, to some friends. He said, Now I begin to be a disciple. Let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones and dismemberment come upon me so long as I attain to Jesus Christ. What did Ignatius know that we forget? He knew that his suffering united him with the way of Christ. He knew that the suffering connected him with the body. In a, in a city which values the bloods and the crypts, more so than an association with the church. Let me use this as an explanation. A couple weeks ago, we saw a group of the Bloods walking down the street. They had their red bandanas. And kids on the corner were giving them high fives. They were the coolest superstars in the city. I almost went to the dollar store and bought a red bandana. <laughs> but what is it that unites us? What is our red bandana? It's not stardom. 
It's not high fives. Friends, our red bandana is persecution. It's suffering. It's rejection. And when we suffer, we find that we are united. You know, this is what destroys racism in the church. When we realize that there actually is one race, and that is the race of the redeemed, and that there is one struggle, that is the struggle of Christ, and we link arms together in that struggle. Friends, may we be united with Christ in our suffering, and may that lead us to rejoice in our suffering that we can share with his sufferings. May we stand with Ignatius, who said, let people not only call me a Christian, but may I be found as one. Now that leads us to our final point. The fourth truth that they knew that we often forget. And that is this. They knew that suffering prepared them for eternity. The believers then knew that their suffering today prepared them for tomorrow. Look at verse 17. For it is time, he says, for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be become of the ungodly and the sinner? When I was a kid... I used to get in trouble with the neighbor kids. But you know what? When my dad found out, I would get in trouble and not the neighbor kids. You see the problem there. I remember often saying to my dad something like, but Stephen was shooting the kid with the BB gun as well. And my dad would say, but Stephen's not my son. My parents disciplined me more than any of my friends. And that's the point, isn't it? Amen. Listen, if you're not a Christian, I want to I I be very clear. All right? we're, no, we're not like a bait-and-switch kind of church. We give it to you as it is. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that if you become a Christian, you might actually suffer more in this world than if you don't. You might actually very possible, suffer more if you give your life to Christ in this world for the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years you're here than if you don't. But friends, it's worth it, and here's why. The judgment of God first doesn't begin with the wicked. We often think of the judgment of God only upon the wicked after death. But what we see here in these verses is that the judgment of God actually begins with the household of God, the church, His people, now. And so the way it works in God's economy is, is that we are being judged and refined in the refiner's fire, which we've already talked about, suffering trials that God brings to us so that our faith might be purified and made gold and then after death, our suffering ends. And if we share in the sufferings of Christ, we also share in His glory. 
And so then for all of eternity, we embrace and enjoy the glory of Christ. Now, if you are not a Christian, you may actually have it easier in this life. Just as my friends had it easier in my neighborhood when I got in trouble with them. Because my dad would only discipline his kids. And I'll tell you, some of my friends are in jail now. You see? There's a warning here as well. On one hand, it, there's a word for Christians to embrace the trials that God brings, to know that it's God's discipline, to know, to know that it's God refining you. On the other hand, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that what he's saying here is that the sufferings of Christians serves as a warning for you. If throughout the last two millennia, Christians have been killed, have been burned at the stake, if God has allowed Christians to suffer in these ways, to receive a bullet in the back of a head, then what will the judgment be like for those who are not in Christ after death? That's essentially what he's saying right here. So friends, if you are not in Christ, I plead with you right now to turn to Christ to repent of your sins, to know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And all who call upon His name have the promise that they are forgiven of their sins. And that they can spend eternity with God. The, the, the call for you right now and my plea for you right now is that you join this family of God. That you become a stranger and an alien in this world. That you allow the world to grow dark around you. That you allow the world to become a strange place. And that you embrace then the persecution and the suffering that can sometimes come with that. With a full knowledge of the hope that is yours in Christ. Family, do not be surprised by suffering when it comes. Do not find it strange when suffering comes. As long as you are suffering for the sake of Christ, rejoice in your suffering. Where are the Blandinas today? Where are the young ladies who are firm in their faith and are willing to take whatever the world can throw at them and rejoice in it and stand boldly in their faith? Where are the Polycarps? The old men who refuse to recant their faith given opportunity after opportunity, and just before the wild beasts are released, offers to explain the doctrines of Christ to the persecutors. Where is Ignatius, who says, let me not just be called a Christian, but let me be found as a Christian as I suffer. I'll tell you where they are. Some of them are in this room. Found, ready to suffer. Some of them are sitting right here. And when suffering for Christ strikes, you will not find it strange. But you will rejoice. Why? Because you know that you're suffering for the right cause. Because you know that your suffering is from God and is for your good. 
because you know that your suffering unites you with Jesus. And because you know that your suffering prepares you for all of eternity. So therefore, rejoice in your suffering. Now, I would fail you if I did not conclude my sermon with Peter's conclusion right here. Look at verse, uh, verse 19. We see the word therefore. Therefore is a summary word. He's, he's basically saying with all of these things being true. With all of these things that I've said being right and good. Therefore, final word, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Trust in God. How do I rejoice in my sufferings? The answer is this. Trust in God. Isn't that the core of our faith? Aren't we just simply called to a life of entrusting the Creator while doing good? Trusting Christ. Trusting that His sacrifice is sufficient to forgive you. Trusting that God, the physician, knows what He's doing. Trusting God. Therefore, friends, entrust your souls to Him. Trust Him. Trust in God. For if you share in the sufferings of Christ, then you will also share in His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time that we could share together this opportunity to look into this ancient letter. Be reminded of the reality that our ancestors suffered in many ways. And that suffering for our faith indeed could come and in some ways does come every day as we live lives of conviction. God, as suffering comes, we ask that you would help us to trust in you. That we would know that we're suffering for the right cause. That we would know that our suffering is worth it as you are the author of it and are refining us. That we would know that our suffering unites us with Christ and that we would know that our suffering prepares us for eternity. It's in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.